good morning, everybody. I'm Gene. If we haven't met, it's my absolute privilege to bring us God's word this morning. <clears throat> uh, why don't we start by praying that God would reveal himself to us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and that you give it to us and that through your word, you reveal yourself to us. We pray for ourselves now that as we read it and we come to it, that your spirit would work in us, that we'd see really clearly who you are and marvel at you and worship you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me tell you about Brian. Brian had dementia. Uh, at first, his wife and his kids, uh, they just noticed he was getting a bit more forgetful. Uh, he'd, he'd lose his glasses because he couldn't remember where he put them down. Uh, he'd walk into the kitchen and, and forget why he'd come in there. Uh, he, he, he forgot the name of the neighbor who moved away a couple of years ago. But as time went on, things got worse. Uh, one day, Brian called his wife, Kathy, on the phone, and he said, darling, I need you to help me. I'm lost. He'd dr driven to the local shops, and he'd forgotten how to come back home. Then the wandering started. Uh, the police would call because he was found by random strangers. Uh, he was confused, wandering the streets. Uh, there were frantic late nights searching for him when he wouldn't return home after he'd gone for an evening walk. When Brian passed away many years later, uh, he was in a nursing home, and he couldn't even recognize his children anymore. And he could only barely recognize his wife. Isn't it so sad seeing somebody's memory fade? Uh, you know, we lose them long before they physically depart from us. After Brian died, his family was sad, but if you asked them about it, they'd say, well, he was already gone for many years. He wasn't himself anymore because of the dementia. You know, our memories, our memories are so important because they form such a large part of who we are. You know, the things that we see, that we touch, that we hear, the things that we experience, we remember them. And, and they shape what we think, what we believe, and how we act. And, and, so, and so to have a problem with our memory is devastating. It, it means that we don't think or feel or act in a way that, that's in line with reality. In the passage we've got from Exodus today, we see that the people of Israel have a memory problem. Israel easily forgets all of the great things that God has done for them. And so far in Exodus, we've seen heaps of great things that God has done, right? Uh, we saw that Israel groaned because of their slavery in Egypt, and God heard them. God raised up Moses, who, who would lead them out of Egypt. Uh, when Pharaoh refused to let uh, Israel go, God sent plague after plague devastating the nation of Egypt until Pharaoh finally relented. And then last week we saw how Pharaoh then changed his mind and decided to send his army to pursue Israel. And Israel panicked, but, but God again rescued them. He parted the Red Sea, allowing Israel to safely pass through, but then the waters crashed down on the Egyptian army, drowning them all. And Israel is free at last. But within just a few short days... They seem to have forgotten all of this. They're in the desert where there's no food and there's no water, and they start to complain to God. And as we unpack the story, we've got to think to ourselves, well, aren't we the same? Don't we just as easily forget all of the amazing things that God has done for us? Don't we complain as well when things don't go our way? Uh, but today we'll see how God responds to their complaining. We'll see just how gracious God is towards the Israelites, 
and we'll see how gracious he is towards us. We're going to see three things today. The first thing is that God is patient with his people. The second is that God provides for his people. And the third one is that God preserves memorials for his people. So God is patient, God provides, and God preserves memorials for his people. Uh, Let's come with me to the first point, and we're going to start at chapter 15, verse 22. I'm going to read the first few verses out again. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Now, what's the thirstiest you have ever been? Uh, Maybe you've had to work nonstop all day, and and you couldn't even catch a break to drink a a cup of water, right? Uh, Maybe maybe you've had really bad gastro, and you couldn't drink any water because you were just vomiting nonstop all the time. For me, it was um, was when I played paintball for my 20th birthday party. Uh, And for some reason, I decided to do it in the the middle of summer, when it was a scorching, hot, dry day. Uh, I remember at the end of it, I felt felt faint. My my mouth was so dry, my tongue was sticking to to the roof of my mouth. Uh, I could feel my body overheating. It was just crying out for for water. I needed water. Can you you imagine being that thirsty? Or or even thirstier, right? You've been wandering through the desert for, for three days, and then you finally find water but then you discover that, it, that it's bitter. You can't drink it. You'd be devastated. You'd be desperate. And that's the situation the Israelites are in. They're desperate, and in their desperation, they, they just forget what God has done for them. And they grumble to Moses. And then verse 25, what does Moses do? Moses cries out to God, and God provides a solution. He, he shows Moses a piece of wood, which Moses throws into the water, and the water becomes fit to drink. And then later down in verse 27, God leads them to a place where there are 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees for shade. God provides for Israel. But then we come to the beginning of chapter 16. It's about a month later, and the Israelites run into another problem. This time, they've run out of food. And so in chapter 16, verse 3, the Israelites say to Moses and Aaron, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. And again, the Israelites, in their desperation, they grumble against Moses and Aaron. But, but this time, don't you think their complaining is particularly obnoxious? Right? They would rather have died in Egypt, where they were brutally enslaved, than be here in the desert. Yeah, at least we had food in Egypt, right? Uh, They seem to have forgotten how how bad things were in Egypt and how good God is to have rescued them. And and Moses, he makes it clear that their complaining is not to them, it's to God. Uh, Look in verse 8, Moses says, Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. But how does God answer this ungrateful, obnoxious complaining? Well, firstly, God hears them. Four times in verses 7, 8, 9, and 12, it says that God has heard their grumbling. Secondly, God provides for them. Three times, verses 4, 8, and 12, God tells them that he will provide food for them. I'll read out verse 8. 
you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning. God doesn't get angry. God doesn't punish them. He doesn't reprimand them. He hears them and he gives them what they want. He provides quail for them in the evening for meat and bread from heaven in the morning, which, which they call manna. But in both of these passages here, you'll notice that it doesn't end there. God does something else. And in, in both of these stories, God tests Israel. Did you see it? Uh, firstly, in chapter 15, verses 25 and 26, I'll read it out for you again. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all of his decrees, I will not bring on on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Here God tests Israel by giving them an instruction or a command. He says, I am the powerful Lord, Listen to me, and I will protect you. God reminds them of who he is and commands them to trust and to obey him. And then again in, verse, uh, in chapter 16, verses 4 and 5, the people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that will be twice as much as they gather on the other days. God is testing Israel to see whether they will follow his instructions. Now, why does he do this? Well, Israel's grumbling to God. Doesn't it show that they don't yet trust God? They've seen God's mighty works, but but seeing, just seeing, isn't believing. It's one thing to see God's power and even to know that he's there, but it's a totally different thing to entrust yourself to him. God tests Israel because he is preparing them to be his people. He tests them to grow their trust in him. So in chapter 16, God, through Moses, gives them two specific instructions about the manna. Firstly, God commands them only to gather as much as they need for each day and not to keep any of it overnight. Secondly, he commands them to gather double on the sixth day and prepare it for the next day because on the seventh day there will be no manna and they are to rest. So how does Israel go? Well, as we read, not great, right? Uh, In verse 20, some of them decide to keep some of the manna overnight, and the next morning it grows maggots and it stinks. Uh, And Moses, understandably, is angry with them. And then in verse 27, some people still, on the seventh day, go out and try to gather more manna. And then finally, we start to see God perhaps show a bit of exasperation, right? Uh, If you look at verse 28, God says to Moses, How long will you, plural you, Israel, refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? But again, there doesn't really seem to be any anger in God's tone at this point. God God still doesn't reprimand them. He still doesn't punish them. In fact, in the next two verses, God simply restates his command and reminds them that he will provide for them. But it doesn't just stop there. Um, In in the next chapter, which we didn't read out, but uh, in the next chapter, we actually have the same situation happen all over again. Uh, Israel runs out of water again. Once again, they grumble to God. And then once again, God miraculously provides water for them. But this time, the passage says it's Israel that tests God. 
I'm going to read out chapter 17, verse 7. If you've got your Bibles there, it's just probably on the next page. Chapter 17, verse 7 says, They tested God by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Time and time again, Israel fails to do what God commands them to do. Time and time again, they fail to trust God. They grumble, they complain to him, they even blame God for the situation that they're in. But time and time again, God provides for them. And yet, after all of this, they still doubt God's presence with them. Somehow, even though they've seen God work powerfully and miraculously, time and time again, they they forget what he's done, and they even doubt that he's there. But still, even though Israel tests God, God still remains patient with Israel. And as we read these verses, it's hard not to be blown away by God's patience. Um, As I reflect on God's patience, I realize just how impatient I am. You know, if I were in God's position, I think it would have snapped ages ago. Like, you know, around somewhere around chapter 16, verse 3, probably, right? Um, You know, when God says, uh, sorry, when Israel says, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, right? I go, well, okay, you know, if that's what you want, so be it, right? Go back to Egypt, see if I care. But, but that's not what God does. God graciously provides for them over and over again. He is patient even when they test his patience. And that's what real patience is, isn't it? Being patient even when our patience is being tested. You know, I think of the times when... Um, when my patience is tested, I think of when, when my son tests my patience, right? If you've got kids, you probably can relate to this. Even when they're really little, um, Levi's not even two yet, um, they, they know how to push your buttons, don't they? Uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, um, I, I was at home from church because um, Levi was sick, and, and so we had church playing on the TV. And uh, what Levi was doing, he was playing close to the TV, and, and he got close to the TV, and he put his hand on the screen. And I said, Levi, no, we don't, we don't touch the TV, right? So I picked him up, I took him, I took him back, um, but sure enough, a few minutes later, he started gradually creeping towards the TV again. And I decided, I'd just sit there and, and see what would happen, right? And so slowly but surely, he inches closer and closer to the TV. He puts his hand up, and just before he touches it, he turns and looks me straight in the eye. And, and he's got this cheeky smile on his face, and I give him this disapproving look, and he sees me and still touches the TV, right? And in that moment, I knew that he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew he was doing the wrong thing, and he was intentionally disobeying me. But isn't the same, you know, sorry, in that moment, right, you know, something welled up inside of me, right? Your blood just kind of boils when somebody intentionally disobeys you and tests your patience like that. But, but isn't it the same with us when we disobey God? Don't we sometimes know exactly what we're doing? You know, we know we're doing the wrong thing. But, but we still intentionally disobey God. But God is still patient with us, even when his patience is tested. God is patient with us in the same way that he was patient with the Israelites. You know, we think we would do much better than the Israelites if we were them, right? But let's be honest, we're the same. We sin over and over again, yet God forgives us over and over again. When Jesus died on the cross, He paid for our sin, past, present, and future. There is no sin we can commit that God will not forgive us for if we just keep coming back to him. How great is God's patience 
and his love for his people. Uh, Let's just marvel at how patient our God is. Our God who forgives us even when we fail to trust him time and time again, just like the Israelites. That's how great is our God. Well, let's keep moving. We've seen how patient God is with his people, but God isn't just patient with them. He also provides for them abundantly. And we've already seen this, but but to dig a little bit more, let's let's read this bit in chapter 16. I'm going to read from verses 13 to 18. That evening, quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? for they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Israel complains they've got no food, and God provides. God provides abundantly. He sends quail in the evening. They cover the entire camp. They can catch and eat as much as they want. And then in the morning, he sends the manna, this bread from heaven, to cover the whole ground, and the people, again, have as much as they needed. Now, this manna, what was it like? Well, it tells us in in verse 31. It says, it was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Now, I recently came across this article on the internet called uh, 11 Revenge Stories of People Doing Exactly What They Were Told. The number one story in that article was about this family where there was a grandmother who passed away. Uh, And she passed away and she left behind this old, dilapidated seaside house. There was no will, but she had a few kids. uh, And and the kids decided that her son uh, would inherit this house. Uh, But it was his responsibility to pay it off uh, and, and to do it up. So he'd have to kind of renovate the whole house and, and bring it up to shape. So that's what he does. Uh, he, he works in the house. He, he puts in this new kitchen. He does the floor. He does the ceiling. He, he extends it. He adds two new bedrooms. And he has to put in a whole septic tank as well because there's no, there's no drainage. There's no sewage, right? Uh, so he does all this work. Uh, and finally, it's done. But then one day, this, this random nephew turns up. And he's like, hey, sorry, guys, but, um, but actually, this house belongs to me. And he pulls out the paperwork, and sure enough, it actually belongs to him. Uh, There's a bit of a court battle, but at the end of the day, uh, the son loses the battle, and the nephew claims the house. Uh, And so so the son, uh, you know, grudgingly has to give this over to him, despite all the work he's put into it. Uh, But just before this happens, uh, the son's lawyer actually realizes that there are two small bits in the contract that he he picks up on. They were, uh, he has to repaint the house, and he has to restore the house to its original condition. So guess what the son does? He brings in the demolition team. He, he knocks out the two rooms that he puts in. He re- destroys the tiled floor, removes the ceiling, gets rid of the septic tank, right? Yet in original condition, right? Uh, and then he brings in his family, and they repaint the whole house. What color did they paint it? Black on the inside, red on the outside, with purple dots, right? To make it as ugly as possible. And then he hands his house over to this nephew, right? Um, it's a little bit mean, right? But, but isn't there something so satisfying about that story? You know, there are people who make these ridiculous or unreasonable requests, and, and they get what they want, but they also get what they deserve, right? You know, at this point in our passage, right, we might expect God to do something like that, you know? Give the Israelites what they want, 
but, but they've been just so ungrateful and untrusting. Uh, let's also give them what they deserve. You know, give them bread, but, but make it rock hard, right? Break their teeth. Uh, or make it really dry, you know? Or maybe make it taste a bit funny. You know, make it, make it, make it durian-flavored, right? <laughs> or, or, you know, give them what they want, but, but show them that you don't mess with God. But again, that's not what God does, is it? You know, verse 31, it was white like coriander seed, and it tasted like wafers made with honey. You know, that's basically the Bible's way of saying that this was the most delicious thing ever. You know, wafers and honey would have been luxuries that the enslaved Israelites could only have dreamed of. God doesn't just give his people the bare minimum. You know, he doesn't give what he gives grudgingly. He doesn't, you know, there's no catch to what he gives. He gives abundantly and generously. And in verse 35, we see that he provided for Israel like this day in, day out, for 40 years. For 40 years, they ate this delicious manna in the desert. But that's not the only thing God gives them. Did you notice that there's one more thing that God gives the Israelites? He gives them the Sabbath. He gives them a day of rest. Read verse 29 with me again. Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. See, the Sabbath is both a test and a gift. It's a test of their trust in God. You know, in order to rest on the seventh day, they had to trust that God was going to give double the day before. They also had to trust that the manna wasn't going to spoil like it did every other day if it was kept overnight. But if they trusted God, then they would get a whole day every week to rest. How wonderful is that? Can you imagine what it would have been like for the Israelites? These were people who were slaves their entire lives. Can you imagine your whole life being forced into hard labor? Every day you're being forced to make bricks and build buildings under the scorching hot sun every single day. Can you imagine living a life under harsh slavery and then being freed? Not only freed, but being given all the food you needed every single day and then being given a whole day to rest every single week. It must have been like paradise. See, God commands Israel to keep the Sabbath as a test. But it's also a wonderful gift. If they trust God and they obey him, they get to enjoy God's wonderful gift of rest. Now, I don't actually think the commandment to keep the Sabbath applies to Christians today exactly, but I think the principle of resting definitely does apply to us. You know, for many of us today, we live really busy lives. Our tendency is just to work and work and work, and I know that's true for me as well. You know, I know that when I'm busy, my tendency is to think, you know, what do I need to do to get things done? But when we work nonstop, what does that show about our hearts? You know, what does it show about what we actually think? We show that we believe that everything's really about us, right? You know, we show that uh, we think that everything depends on me and my work. But when we rest, we demonstrate that we trust in God. By resting, we take a step back and we say, hey, it's not, it's not up to us and our work, but it's up to God and, and God's work. You see, resting is actually a way that we can live out the gospel. You know, isn't the gospel all about how no matter how hard we work, that we could never save ourselves? 
how, how we could never earn our way into heaven and into eternal life with God? Isn't the gospel all about how Jesus is the bread of life who satisfies the hunger of our souls, who freely gives us forgiveness of our sins? If God has given us everything we need in Jesus, then we can trust that he will provide for us and we can express our trust by resting. And, and why not adopt the Bible's model of this? You know, maybe it's not a command for us, but why not? You know, one day a week of rest. One day of no work, of not checking your emails, maybe not even doing chores. If you can manage it, does it sound crazy? Maybe. But doesn't it also sound great? Why, why not give it a go? But, you know, it's actually good for us as well. Um, as a GP, I see people come to me with all sorts of issues, right? But, but something I see far too much of is people who are burned out from their work. Uh, people who, who push themselves nonstop for years, working really, really hard, but they push themselves to the brink. Uh, just recently, I had someone come to me uh, really high up in a big organization, right? And this person told me, uh, you know, they were in this position, but they told me that they actually had the exact same thing happen to them just two years ago. And they got so mentally unwell, they had to take six months off work just to recover. But they went back to work, and two years later, here we are again. You see, God tells us to rest because we also need to rest. You know, who would have thought that God's commands are actually good for us, right? And that the Sabbath isn't just some arbitrary command that God gives the Israelites, but, but that it truly, truly is a gift. And would you trust God enough to rest well? Let's come to our last point, that God preserves memorials for his people. I'm going to read out verses 32 to 34 uh, towards the end of our passage. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come, so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna into it then place it before the Lord to be kept for generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law so that it might be preserved. Moses and Aaron, under God's instruction, take some manna and they preserve it. And in verse 34, we see that this jar of manna is put with the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. And this eventually becomes part of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, why does God tell them to do this? Well, in verse 32, it tells us it's so that the future generations can see what God gave them to eat in the wilderness. Remember Israel's problem, their, their memory problem, how they continually failed to remember God and what he did for them? Well, we see that God is providing a solution for that here. God is preserving for them a memorial so that they can remember the great things that God has done for them. God does this so that they and their future generations would keep trusting in him. And God does this for us too. God also preserves memorials for us so that we can remember his great works and trust in him. The main way that God has done this for us is through this book called the Bible, right? Because in this Bible or this collection of, of 66 ancient books, we have preserved the records of God's great works so that you and I can get to know him, get to know him, the true and living God of the whole universe. 
Is that how you see the Bible? If it is, then wouldn't you cherish the Bible? Wouldn't you cherish it because it records all of God's mighty works in creation? Uh, The flood, the exodus, all of the Old Testament stories. But most of all because it contains and records the life, the death, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you cherish it because in it we meet Jesus the Son of God who reveals God to us. Jesus who died on the cross to pay for our sins, who rose again to life to secure for us eternal life with God. The Bible is the ultimate memorial that God has preserved for us. And we need to cherish and to be deeply and richly immersed in it. Now, why am I going on about this? Isn't it because we have the same memory problem as the Israelites? I, mean, I, know, I know I do, right? I know I do because my wife needs to tell me the same thing every day, right? Um, you know, at home, it's, it's my responsibility to take out the rubbish, right? In our kitchen, we've got, um, we've got our bin, like a slide-in cupboard, right? Slide-in bin under the cupboard. Um, but, but even when the bin gets full, I often forget to carry out my responsibility. Uh, and sometimes it's because I'm lazy, but more often it's because I just forget to do it, right? And the bin gets more and more full until you can't even close the door anymore, right? And then at that point, Anna has to make it like super obvious to me. She has to kind of pull up the edges of the bin liner uh, so, so I can see and I know that she's seen just how full it is, right? Uh, and then if that doesn't work, she has to literally tie the bin up for me, right? And so I, I can't do anything more except take it out, right? I, I have the same memory problem as well. And, and if we're honest, we all have the same memory problem. We all have a memory problem when it comes to God. We easily forget God and what he has done for us. And which makes it all the more important that we need to carve out time to be in God's word. And I say this as a hypocrite, right? I could do better. I need to do better as well. If you're like me and you've fallen out of a daily Bible reading habit, why don't you join me and start up again? Pick a book, any book, right? Pick something easy to read. Pick, Pick like Mark or something from the New Testament and just read one paragraph a day, just one paragraph a day and spend a minute praying about what you've read. Take that first step. I think it's all about just taking that first step, and then, and then God will use that. But let's wrap up our time together. Uh, even though we forget about God all the time, God doesn't forget us. He is still patient with us, and still, he still provides for us everything that we need. Won't we marvel at and worship our infinitely gracious God? Let me pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are, that you are a patient God and you are a God who abundantly and generously provides for your people. Help us to marvel at who you are and to remember who you are and hold fast to your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.